welcome to episode 120 of the App Advice Weekly Podcast. I'm Brett Nolan of AppAd.net, and with me as always is Trevor Sheridan of App Advice. In this episode, Trevor and I ride the rails while on a magical journey filled with fairies, dark creatures, and a snarky AI. How you doing tonight, Trevor? Doing good. It's amazing how we just have this constant supply of games to talk about that we're already falling behind in the Apple Arcade. I, I know. It's like it, there's so much there, and these are like time-consuming games. You want to spend a lot of time. You don't want to move on each week. And you could easily just play a couple of these for months and never have to move on. Yeah, if you weren't us, you would never have to move on. You could just still be playing Jenny LeClue that we talked about in the first week and <laughs> not <laughs> ignore everything else we've been talking about. I know. Yeah, there's just a lot of long-term content here. And so before we do get to the Apple Arcade, Apple's not making the most news. They have had their events for the year. We're pretty much good with them until November 1st when Apple TV Plus launches. But speaking of that, Apple TV Plus came to Roku devices because Apple wants as many people as possible to sign up for their new streaming service. Yeah, this is actually awesome news because I have one Apple TV and it's not on my two Roku OS TVs. So on now on those TVs, I can access my iTunes content. So not only does that Apple TV Plus app give you access to like the service if you subscribe to it, but you have access to all your purchases that you made on iTunes. So all this stuff that you previously could only ever watch on an Apple device, now you can watch it on your Roku TVs or if you have a, it's not on every single like the old boxes don't support it, but if you have one of the TVs that has Roku OS on it, you can load it up, uh, install the app and then you can start watching all this content that you already own, even before Apple TV Plus shows up. Yeah, it's definitely just smart move by Apple, but also a smart move by Roku. As to why, you know, deny yourself people who want to do this, especially when you already have a more affordable box, and it, it just works for everybody involved. Yeah, yeah, I, and I think Roku today announced, like, all their new slate of Roku boxes as well. So uh, the, the odds are... This may be your cheaper method of getting Apple TV on there and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, if that's all you care about, if you don't care about Apple Arcade content, uh, maybe the Roku box is the way to go then. But if you do listen to our podcast, hopefully you care about Apple Arcade content and you see that's the distinguishing feature of the Apple TV. But Apple still has not released a new actual TV box. I know we need a new TV. Now that these Roku boxes are coming out, this gives me better hope that Apple is really going to step it up and release something new to make it all shiny and attractive to go with them. And just go all in on this whole TV service to say that everywhere you could possibly get Apple TV, you should get it. But also, we offer the best box available for anyone to watch your Apple TV content as well as play Apple Arcade games in addition to all the normal streaming services that you have. Because Apple needs to position this service not as your one go-to thing, because they can't compete with Disney Plus at all. If you've seen Disney Plus's Twitter thread that they released on Monday, everybody else can just go home and, I mean, there must have been <laughs> over 500 different things that Disney is going to oh, bring. it was bring. insane. <laughs> and they decided to tweet it out one at a time. Like, it was crazy. And, well, Apple has announced that they've already picked up uh, one, at least a couple of the series for second seasons, but we've also found out they're being very controlling and showrunners are leaving shows, they're bringing in new showrunners for shows. 
Uh, the Amazing Story Show is not even going to make it. Uh, it's not going to be ready for launch now. So there's all kinds of chaos going on on their content. But it would behoove them to have the best box out there because not only would they get people watching it through their box, but there's more of a chance that maybe someone who's just subscribing to one of these non-Apple TV services like Netflix or Amazon or one of these other services may subscribe through the Apple TV box. And then now they're getting a cut of those service fees. So that's how Roku makes their money by getting people to sign up through their boxes. You can sign up for Apple TV right through your Roku box. You can watch it on all your devices once you do that. But it makes sense for Apple to really kind of get in there and kind of lock people into their box and maybe get additional revenue out of them beyond just Apple TV. Absolutely. I mean, it makes no sense for them to be dragging their heels on something that's a money making machine. Right, exactly. But that's Apple TV and TV content stuff. We'll have more of that once we get past November 1st. But guess what? Google's making some news with their brand new Google Pixel 4, which if you are a fan of Android, you're probably not listening to our podcast. But even (laughs) if you are, say you like iPads and Macs and all that, I won't. It doesn't matter. (laughs) We'll take you. Yeah, we're not judging about whatever device you have. because. Google's making some good devices. Honestly, if I were to get an Android device, it would be from Google. And the Pixel 4, really, the Pixel 3 pushed Apple forward on the camera things. The way they offered night mode and various camera technologies, all software-based, Apple picked up on that and included it with the new iPhone 11 and Pro. And so I appreciate what Google's doing to push Apple. And with the Pixel 4, they're going more all-in on the photo technology. They enhance the camera sensors. There's not three different lenses, but they enhance the sensors as they do have. They improve night mode, be able to capture starry sky, have it so it it recognizes familiar faces from your photos. It always makes them the center of your picture as you move around or video, whatever have you. Just really kind of software-based technologies to enhance the camera sensors they have. And then there's a lot of uh, Google Voice Assistant inclusions and improvements because google actually cares about their voice system unlike apple who said who's siri (laughs) so hopefully if you do like that kind of idea google's actually investing in there and then they have these new uh sensors motion sensors where you can swipe over your device to change songs and interact with your device just by swipe gestures not actually touching the device and so that also ties into its face id competitor system that gets it going before you actually pick it up. So it's supposedly the fastest one out there. Though if you've used an iPhone 11 Pro, I don't know how you could be more be faster than instantaneous, but whatever Google likes to claim there. It's just it's a nice laundry list of features. The kind of caveat, though, it's like as I'm going over it, it's like it seems that Google's competing with the iPhone 11 with this device. It doesn't really touch on what the iPhone 11 Pro does. Yeah, it, it seems to be like they are positioning themselves every bullet point that they really kind of tried to stress with this phone announcement went directly after Apple. I mean, it's shocking how much these two phones look almost identical now at this point. Like you look at the backs of them, they both have a little square up in the top corner with the cameras and the rest of it's all blank on the back. Like these things look almost identical at this point, the, these phones. Granted, uh, for the Pixel 4, they did kind of eliminate the notch sort of 
on on the Pixel 4 where they kind of just turned it into one big black bar across the top, so now there's not that necessarily noticeable notch. But it seems to be like they're just trying to go feature for feature. One of the things yeah, they highlighted was, yeah, we're now the fastest face ID of any mobile phone. Obviously, a, a dig at Apple. And then they have this new motion sensor, so you don't have to pick up your phone. And that combined with this radar sensor is what allows them to pre-do that face ID so that it's ready to go as soon as you pick up the phone and look at it. And then allows those motion controls. But feature for feature, they definitely be, are going right up against Apple. I did see a, a preliminary showdown. I don't know how biased it is, or I mean, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of them of the cameras. Uh, between the iPhone, I believe it was the 11, and the Pixel, the Pixel 4. And the Pixel beat out, although it's subjective, uh, the iPhone on most of the photo scenarios that they did, but other ones, it was kind of too close to call. It's getting to the point where these things are just so close to each other that there's one does one thing, the other one copies it, and then either, whether or not they do it better, they say they do it better. And I guess really where the spot they're both lacking is the optical zoom. Let's see more of that. Like, increase the optical zoom. And there will be a standout feature for me. Yeah, I was hoping that the Pixel 4 might go with some four times optical zoom, but instead it sticks with the two times optical zoom that Apple has. And then it also comes in two different screen sizes, the 5.7, the 6.3 inch OLED displays. But... Yeah, like you said, I mean, you go through the feature set, they have their special M Titan chip for security. So it's like the security enclave of the iPhone 11. It's like Google had these meetings. What's everything that the iPhone does? Well, we're going to list the same exact features on our website and how we do it that's slightly different or at least the same or better. You know, it's like I, I, I don't even know what the point is other than slapping Android on it. Right. It, it would be awesome if it didn't matter what of these phones you grabbed and you could just load whatever OS you wanted to. Like, that would be the most ideal situation. But at this point, the phones are nearly identical anyways. It doesn't really even matter. You're just buying the phone to match the OS that you want to run. And, I mean, that's how it's been for a while now, but never, I think, have they ever been this close to looking nearly identical. Like It's really almost ridiculous at this point. I do like that they got rid of the notch by just making the top bar of the frame of the device a solid line all the way across rather than notching it out. I mean, the notch is still there. It's just they added black nothingness to the left and right of the notch. It's a pretty impressive way to say we got rid of the notch rather than actually making a complete screen front. Yeah, that's I guess we're waiting until the iPhone 12 to do that. And then the Pixel 5. Hey, look, we got rid of the notch because Apple did. Cool stuff like that. I'm sure it will be. I'm sure iPhone 12 will be like, hey, they say they got rid of the notch, but look, you're missing part of the screen. We got rid of it. Like, it's just each time, it's just let's get what they didn't get. And uh, I don't know. It's it's almost coming laughable at this point, but I guess it's nice for consumers that they're competing, but and it sort of drives innovation, not really. A little but... on the fringes. There's fringe innovation. Yes. But it's not like yes. wholesale. They're they're not going with, let's make a device that's way better. Let's make a device that's pretty similar. That, that doesn't seem like the most innovation, but a few little cool things come out of it. 
Yeah, yeah. It's little things here and there. And then each company comes up with their own spin on it. And so the Pixel 4 starts at $799 for the smaller screen size, the 5.7, then the 6.3 is $899. Again, it's not going to really be on the iPhone 11 Pro. It's more on the iPhone 11. You know, the iPhone 11 and the Pixel 4 are both made out of aluminum. They're both not as high. They don't have the three camera lenses. The same differences that we talked about between the iPhone 11 and the iPhone 11 Pro, it's kind of the differences between the Pixel 4 and the iPhone 11 Pro. So that's why the pricing fits in because I think the iPhone 11 is $699. This has OLED, so it's $100, $200 more depending on the screen sizes. It all fits into the whole pricing scheme. You're not getting a way better deal one way or the other. There's no phone that's like, this is a killer feature that you need to pay a premium or you're getting a super value discount on. They're pretty similar phones. If you like iOS, you know what you're going to get. If you like Android, you know what you're going to get. Yeah, and one interesting thing is these the Pixel 4s are only in 64 and 128 sizes, and there is no SD card expansion that you can expand that space on your own. So like the, we've had with iPhones for years, you can expand it. You buy the size that you're going to have and you're stuck with it until you sell the device or uh, start putting more stuff out in the cloud instead of storing it locally on the, on the device itself. Which is fun because one of the selling features of Android has always been that they have expandable uh, storage. And so Google's yeah, like, our Pixel devices themselves aren't going to. If Samsung, whoever wants to do it, by all means. Yeah, um, to me, that seems kind of like that could have been a selling point. But I, I guess in the end, it's always going to come down to the OS. I think people are kind of married to one or the other. And I've tried Android before, and I just didn't think it was as friendly as iOS. And at this point, I have so much content in iOS that I'm not going to switch. And plus, I lose all my Apple Arcade game. Apple Arcade might be the best selling point between the two devices for me. <laughs> yeah because it's funny when you're scrolling through google's advertisement and they're like look at all these cool features for google maps or google photos or whatever i'm like i use google photos i use google maps and i use google music i mean if i'm gonna go with a service google makes the best services but apple makes the best hardware and i think they make the best software so i'll just marry the two together yeah, as long as they don't get into such a battle that all of a sudden we lose all the google services on our iPhones. Like, yeah. I could foresee happening at some point. Well, it was happening for, for now, a bit good. when they were super stubborn towards one, one another. But then Steve Jobs passed away and Google or Apple's like, whatever, dudes, we're making mad bank. <laughs> we're like, our stock is going way up. We're back over a trillion. Whatever, dudes. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's the Google Pixel 4. They also announced Google Pods or whatever, Pixel Pods, Google because Buds. everybody Pickle needs butt. to have a competitor to the AirPods. But and they're more expensive than the AirPods, so which is amazing. They apparently, yeah, and apparently they didn't even have a working demo at the show, so yeah, no one knows how these actually sound. At least the Pixel Four comes out on October twenty fourth. Yeah, so uh, it's out there. There's so many of these uh, AirPod competitors coming. We have the Echo Buds, the uh, these Pixel Google Pixel Buds. Probably some Galaxy Buds. Yeah, there's Galaxy uh, Air Buds. Air Buds. Who knows? <laughs> Air like... Buds. They're for dogs. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> people would buy them. I'm sure people would buy oh, them. Oh, you know they'd buy them. They buy dog sweaters and dog shoes and all kinds of dog stuff. Dog headphones. We gotta on. get them. We gotta make them. We gotta. We gotta get the rights to AirBuds. Yeah, that, that's what that will be our marketing or our release in the system. Perfect. And so that means it's time for the Apple Arcade, the main distinguishing feature of the iPhone, of the Apple TV, and of the iPad and the Mac and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and so our apple arcade spotlight of the week we'll start with Oceanhorn 2 it was a launch title and like we mentioned at the top apple's gonna keep releasing stuff there was four games last week there was five new games this past week so that's nine new games over the past two weeks and we're still talking about launch titles because there were 70 of those and with Oceanhorn 2 hopefully you played the original if you're a fan of zelda or any type of rpg adventure style game that's what Oceanhorn is it's a 3d adventure experience you have your sword and shield and it's time to go face all kinds of monsters and go to different islands and explore through caves and various interactions with town folk and all that good stuff all that familiar things that people absolutely love about those other franchise is actually available on our on apple arcade on ios and with the sequel it really redesigns the entire game because the first one it was a big deal when it came out, but it came out about five years ago. So in those five years, graphical fidelity and capabilities of iOS devices have advanced, and Oceanhorn 2 is going, going right along with it. The game is absolutely beautiful. It's one of the better-looking games available on iOS, just with the details you see in the environments. Nevertheless, the characters and the enemies and all that good stuff. And then there's relatively simple, accessible controls. You move with the left joystick. You have an attack button. You have a jump button. And they made it so you can swipe to do your dodge or your barrel rolls instead of actually tapping on a specific dodge button. So there's not a full array of buttons. So it maybe doesn't have to require a third party controller, though it definitely can help. But really, the main idea is that if you like any type of adventure experience, Oceanhorn 2 has it all. It's just that maybe it's not as good as I expected it to be because the gameplay itself is where it felt kind of rudimentary. It felt a lot like Oceanhorn 2. Like the graphics engine, the scope of the worlds that you're going to explore in, that's all expanded. That's all enhanced. But the gameplay felt very similar. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think I ever finished the first one, but this is one of the type of games where I think I never finished the first one because it is like 15 hours plus of content. And you can just easily get lost in this. You start playing and hours just go by and you don't even notice because you're in this world there's exploring trying to solve these puzzles and then you hit boss battles and attack those and they're trying to go on these little mini quests and and finish those and so there's always something to do whether you're you're scrounging around to get some hearts to get your health back up or just attacking little creatures that happen to be around and so it's one of these where you just yeah i don't know it, you could play this for for a whole month and just probably continue to play. But I do see what you're talking about, where it seems uh, almost a little more simplistic. And maybe I, I expected maybe to get the complexity a little bit higher with the new with the sequel. But it does seem like you're kind of more of like just leaving it open to everyone where it's approachable by any age or skill level. And even if you die, you get to kind of it's constantly saving your progress. So you can restart exactly where you left off and give it another attempt. And eventually you'll figure out how to kill this boss or 
or maybe you got to search around, find other items. I am stuck at one point. So you have this kind of like guide uh, or companion with you. And somehow you're supposed to be able to have him like follow you or have him trigger things for you. And I am stuck at this one point where I cannot seem to get him to go and flip a switch for me so I can open the store and continue through. And uh, I'm still trying to figure this out. But otherwise... I, I'm enjoying this, and it's one that I wish I didn't have have to play other things as rapidly as we do, because I would love to spend just days upon days on this and go through the whole thing. Yeah, there's such a huge world to just explore, and you, there. One of the best parts of Oceanhorn is that there's that gigantic world, but there's always a focused set of missions. Because a lot of these type of games, they can kind of get lost in the weight of side missions and. You're never really progressing the story. You're doing a lot of running around that doesn't actually contribute to moving through the overarching storyline. And Oceanhorn 2 seems to at least focus you on a pathway. Like some people might prefer the open world style, but if you want to enjoy the entire story, you kind of want at least some boundaries so you're pushing forward through the overarching concept. Like, oh, I'm going to this island this random island over here and i'm going to kill enemies but that didn't help me at all i just wasted an hour doing nothing that contributes <laughs> to beating the entire game so this game at least you're on the right island you're on the right pathway you're you're going somewhere it's just really that first boss battle is where i kind of got that abruptness of how simplistic the overarching gameplay is like i understand you're making a game for apple arcade apple arcade apple specifically wants as many people as possible to play the games and Oceanhorn 2 is one of their big titles. Every time Tim Cook was on stage talking about it, they had Oceanhorn 2 playing in the background. So this is one of their big ticketed titles, one of their main launch ideas. And so you want as many people to play, whether you're five years old or 105 years old or anywhere in between, Apple wants you to play Oceanhorn 2. And so in doing so, I'm sure it changes kind of the scope of what you could potentially do. Like it doesn't have a whole combat system. There's no a quick, uh, oh, let me switch over to archery mode. There's no, oh, I'm going to jump on a horse and ride through the worlds. You know, you're <laughs> thinking of Breath of Wild stuff. I'm, it's not going to compete with a brand new Switch game that Nintendo's been designing for five years with their gigantic, huge staff. This is a smaller studio, and they're making a game for mobile devices. So it's simple in that scope. And then also, you can play for a bit and then leave. Like, you can get lost for playing hours at a time, but also... If you are waiting and you just have like 10 or 15 minutes to play, this has good save spots. So you're not like going to replay that same sequence again. Like, oh, I need an hour by itself to play this game. So that's part of you can't have that big open world or that idea because it's a mobile game made to be played mobile. But again, that first boss battle, it just seems so rudimentary. Like it was overly simplistic, but not only that, it's just the way the enemy spawned and generated its tentacles and the placements of attacks it was just so simplistic it kind of it didn't even feel like a boss battle it it felt just so 2014 or 15 mobile game it doesn't feel like a 2019 mobile game i have a higher expectation and standard based on what other people have done for the platform yeah so the only thing that threw me with that first boss battle is they had all these like mines out there but they really did nothing. I thought I'm supposed to push these things into this guy. And really, it was a much more simple way to just take him out. And yeah. I'm not going to tell you just because I want you to figure it out. But it seemed like it was going to be this more epic thing. And 
I I end up pausing it because I, I I like he's not taking like any damage. Like what the heck? And then I'm trying to push the mines and it then I had to pause it and then it forced me to restart at the beginning of it. And the next time through, I'm like, let me just try this. And like lo and behold, oh my gosh, this is much faster. And I took him out in no time. So yeah, I but to me, like I prefer this shorter experience like the save points and not like insane amounts of world exploring and ways to get completely off track i do like that they kind of keep you on the track of where you need to go but you can explore if you want to but i'm not i'm at the age where i don't have 30 hours to just sit around roaming in a game and doing this like i wanted i i need to go through and finish it and then move on to something else like i can't be just lost in this thing so i do appreciate the way it was designed to kind of allow for that more focused kind of finish it feel like you're making progress and moving through the game uh versus something that's just a massive massive thing that you're probably never going to end or give up before you actually get 100 percent completion just because you just don't have the time and keep in mind i'm being nitpicky because this game has the expectation to be the best or one of the best available in the Apple Arcade and on iOS as a whole. So it has to have that standard. It has a bar that's extremely high that it needs to reach. And that's where I feel it doesn't reach that. Like from a pure going into this game, it's a great game, extremely well designed. But with the pedigree of the original Oceanhorn, which I did complete entirety, that last boss battle in that game is absolutely amazing. The overarching storyline that you get to complete, it's a great story, all-encompassed, great from start to finish. And this one just really makes it more of a 3D environment to that first game. They didn't change with a new combo system or new ways to interact with the world or new enemy varied types that do all kinds of new challenges. It doesn't get to any of that point. They just really change the perspective and the design style and here you go and that's just a little disappointing from what could be and what you do expect five years later plus apple arcade one of the best on the platform yeah i mean i i didn't know what to expect and i was actually uh this one i was almost dreading going into it because i knew it was so long but not because i I, it looked super appealing but i knew it was one of these things that's going to be a long time to get through and like i said i went into it thinking oh this is gonna take forever and i don't even know where to start and almost overwhelmed from the beginning and it was one of these i just got lost in it and just enjoyed the ride for for what it is yeah i definitely agree with that and so that's oceanhorn 2 it's available on the apple arcade be sure to sign up for a free trial of apple arcade keep in mind you have that 30-day free trial you might not get through Oceanhorn 2 if that's the only game you played. That's how big this game is. So <laughs> keep <laughs> yeah. that in mind. Yep. And then Bradwell Conspiracy just came out last week. It was going to be originally launched title. Apple kind of held it back so they could have these weekly releases. Because remember, they originally said 100 launch titles. And I think they were considering the time from the launch to the end of the year. So kind of through the holiday season. Once we get to 2020, we'll have different standards of how many games are being released. But it's like they gave us 70, they held back 30, so they can give us four or five every week or two to make it through the end of the year. 
And so Bradwell Conspiracy comes from Bosses Studios. They made I Am Bread and Surgeon Simulator and some crazy kooky games. And so they're more publisher on this one. But if you've ever played one of their games, you know that it's different. It has its own unique ingredients to make it stand out. And so Bradwell Conspiracy, when you dive into it, it's relatively familiar. You have this kind of 3D action adventure game or puzzle adventure game. You have to figure out your way through various sequences. The game starts where you're in this Bradwell Museum at Stonehenge, and there's been an explosion. It's one of the best starts to a game I've come across where you're instantly thrown into a perilous situation. And so the museum's collapsing. You need to get your way out. And it's kind of this subtle future glance where you have this whole interactive AI system that helps you through the museum. And then in this case, it also helps you through emergency situations. And so you're going to interact with the AI plus the demolishing museum and just figure your way out. And then as you go, you start, you come across new characters and then you start to really figure out why did the museum collapse? What was the bomb doing? What, what exactly is the nefarious purpose behind all of this? And you get to unravel the narrative. Yeah. And it like immediately draws you right in because it's like this snarky, almost like portal, this snarky AI that's kind of talking to you. That's kind of, saying like sarcastic things and it's super humorous dialogue it kind of reminded me of like thomas was alone which was another title by bossa studio and portal just and so like one of the things that you uh get early on in the game is this kind of 3d printing gun so what the way it works is you can suck up materials and then you get these blueprints to kind of print your own versions of whatever the blueprint. So it might be like a key or some other object that you need in order to solve these puzzles. And so it's a a thing of sucking up raw materials and then using the right blueprints to print those out and to solve the puzzles. The weird part, I mean, it starts to get a little uh, difficult in the, the 3D environment and getting those 3D printed things you're trying to print out lined up properly. I had the 3D printing gun kind of close on me a few times. I had to reopen it. So there seems to be some kind of kludginess there, but overall, like, I am super into the story and drawn into the story that this whole world, this weird world and the weird uh, AI that's talking to you, this pulled me into the story that I'm overlooking some of this stuff but i can see where it's starting to annoy me a little bit in places when i'm trying to solve some of these these puzzles yeah i definitely can see that for me it just felt like it wasn't as engaging as i would expect like we've played a few narrative-based games or talked about a few like jenny Leclue and over the alps and those just seem to suck you in to care about the overarching story and this game it seemed like i was stumbling over the controls, like you said, the a few glitches and just I was like, maybe it would be better if I would be using a, a third party controller or something. It just there was like a disconnect between really caring and getting involved. Like I know we talked before and you were saying that the AI is what really kept you going. But for me, it didn't really hit. And so without that, I, I just it was the controls and just the whole interactive system was too much of a barrier beyond the narrative itself it didn't overcome those like generally clue is kind of hard to interact with it's frustrating at times but i cared to want to get through the story bradwell conspiracy has similar hiccups but 
The story didn't really connect with me, even though they had, like I said, that really interesting throw you right into the game with the explosion and the mysteries and relatively accessible ideas. But it just there was a disconnect. Yeah, yeah. For me, I, I, I'm all in on the story. And one of the the cool things that um that they've done here is they have a built-in help system where you have this other colleague who you don't see who's in another part of the museum and what you can do is you can send her photos of whatever's in front of you and she's supposed to help you out based on those photos this is another situation where it's a cool mechanic which doesn't always work perfectly like if you're not taking exactly the right picture of something she's gonna say i don't know what that is sometimes she'll go oh i can help you if i knew what that was so she tricks you into thinking she's gonna help you and then you realize no she's not gonna help you but it, it is a nice system that they implemented where it is always there you can just take a snapshot of whatever you're looking at and hopefully it helps i almost get the impression like this would make a really good like vr game if you had like a uh, Oculus or some kind of VR system, it would be even better if you were wearing like VR goggles and be able to interact with stuff tactilely, like right in front of you. I think it would work really well. And I'm almost wondering if it was designed for that originally, and then Apple Arcade came along and they decided to to do this instead. But I I, I don't know. It's just this little feeling and the. It seems like it would be so made perfectly for VR. It kind of feels like a VR game without the VR headset, where even the graphics aren't as sharp as I would expect for this 3D design engine. It feels like it could use a once-over. And the photo system, it's a neat idea, but it doesn't fully click or work. All these things, it feels, it reminds of VR, because VR, it's half-baked, it's kind of neat. It's something that you like to share, but then when you get down to the nitty-gritty, it's like, I could be enjoying myself in more fully developed and fleshed out ideas. And that's how I just came away from the game. Yeah, I, I think it relative, it's relatively short overall. I, I think I've seen some people say it only took like three to four hours. I think I'm about an hour and a half in, hour or so in. I, I, I'm only I'm stuck in one spot. This is it, well, it's also the curse of having to play so many games. I can't just focus on one of these and play it all the way through because it's I need to get through games, but uh, this is one I'm definitely planning on finishing because uh, it is a relatively short experience. But I, I think, like we said, you can see even between just the two of us, we have differing feelings on the game. So it may not hit with everyone, but I think if you have the right sense of the the if it hits your sense of humor, you the storyline might be enough to drive you through, even with the the issues that we both mentioned with the controls, but. I, it's definitely one we're trying, even if it's just for the whole opening sequence, and then you decide not to play anymore. I think you're going to really enjoy that opening whole part. Uh, but I don't know. I would say give it a try. You have a free trial. Go ahead. Yeah, it's not perfect, but it's definitely not bad. Again, this is nitpicking really thought out, well-designed games. And there's some things that don't always work and aren't perfect. and we're trying to let you know but it doesn't mean oh this is the worst thing i've ever played you know don't have to deal <laughs> with hyperbole or anything like that it's a whole experience but then you have to decide where you're going to use your time with apple arcade not many people have the time to play 70 games over the next month 
So you have to pick and choose where you're going to go with. 79 games. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so then there's Super Impossible Road, which hopefully you've played Impossible Road. That game was super challenging. It was like that Twitch-based challenge even before Super Hexagon and similar games hit the App Store. And part of me felt like that game was purposely designed so you never felt in control. Like it was kind of teetering on, out of control, almost even purposely poorly designed control system to deal with it. And it was always just an endless thing. How far can you go down this super impossible road? It was one of those classic quick action iOS games. And so with Super Impossible Road, I was like, what, did they update the graphics and, you know, released on Apple Arcade? Turns out this is a fully fleshed out game and idea where they've refined the controls. So I felt like I was in perfect control of this ball rolling down this neon course. It's kind of like Rainbow Road and it goes straight down. It's kind of like spirals downwards and in various curves and angles and all that kind of good stuff. And They've set it up so that there's an actual single player mode where there's multiple different ways to play. We talked about Speed Demons last week with their different game modes and Super Impossible Road does a similar idea. Like there's one mode where it's just time trial. You have to get through gates and reach the end point as fast as you can. Then there's race mode where there's three AI opponents that you have to beat to the bottom. And then there's one where you have to fly through rings and you know, you're scored on three stars based on how many rings you get through before the end. And really, the most appealing part of Super Impossible Road is that you're not supposed to really drive on the road. Like, there's sequences where you need to, but really the major challenge and strategy of the game is to fly off the edge of the road and then pick it up as you fall straight downwards so you, you know, surpass and jump past all these different sequences. Because it's much quicker to fall straight down than it is to drive on a corkscrew. So the ability to launch off and then land is one of the things the biggest challenges to pick up but all these different game modes whether you're racing against people or go i mean the ring mode you literally have to fly off the course to go through the ring and (laughs) it's just so awesome that they took a simple clear mechanic and fleshed it out into this actual super engaging racing really just driving challenge yeah so i never played the original but your rainbow road analogy is perfect because Rainbow Road, I find one of the most frustrating Mario Kart, if you're not familiar, Mario Kart courses out there. And because I'm always flying off the side of Rainbow Road and it's kind of obnoxious. Uh, (laughs) But this, I felt like the controls are so dead on and the fact that you do have to jump off the course to get ahead of the other players. And sometimes it's just a matter of jumping off the course and then just bumping into the road so that now you have a new checkpoint and then that sometimes you'll have you'll be a little more controlled that you can kind of start steering and be okay other times you'll bounce off again and now you got to try to land on another part of the course and you do have that temporary boost that you can try to get yourself back on the road but you're not always going to do it if you really are going to lose you can quickly swipe down and you're reset back to your last checkpoint and ready to keep on going so that you're not uh, completely out of the race and definitely going to lose. Those different game modes are fantastic because it always gives you a different kind of way to to play the game. But really, the appeal of it is that whole off-roading. It kind of reminds me of Jet Car Stunts. You remember yep. that game? Yeah. From, and so that one, you had to go off the course at times. But that, you were actually in a in an aircraft, or at least a, a jet car, that you could fly and... 
this one, you're just this rolling ball that kind of just bounces off the course when, when you hit it. But you can use that boost, and there are different... You actually get to decide the ball that you're racing with. You can choose different stats, so you choose different types of balls or different uh, little blades on them to kind of adjust these various stats of, like, your speed, your boosting, your steering, and all these things. So you can kind of find something that's comfortable with the way you're playing and try different ones out and see what works best for either the kind of race you're doing or just your particular style or your ability to even play the game. Maybe you needed a way up on the steering to help you out to stay on the course, or maybe you just want to max that boost out to give yourself the best possible chance of going off the edge and then being able to reach another platform. But it's crazy. Like, like I remember when the original came out, and it was one of those things where, it, I think you're right, I think it was at the time where everyone was trying to create games which was horrible controls, and then that was the game, trying to figure out how to control this impossible-to-control thing. And I never found that fun. I just found it like, I felt like it was against me the whole time, uh, and even though this one I didn't play, I played similar games. So it's good to see, like, the they really have like refined the controls and made this so that it feels like you it's your fault that you missed it not that the game is against you but you just didn't have the skill or the practice to be able to pull something off or the knowledge of the shortcut that you need to take in order to hit that that mark it's amazing how pinpoint the controls are for the sheer chaos and speed with as you're driving down a spiraling course it's just you you're rolling a ball down a hill that corkscrews downwards and you feel like you're in full control as you take these banks and curves as you're going downwards or flying off and then maneuvering in the air to then land or like you said sometimes you just bounce off the course so one thing i do want to mention you can't just launch off the start and then land at the bottom if you're off the course for a certain number of seconds, you lose. So you can only be off for a certain amount of time, and the screen starts to fade to black as you're going, so you know how much time you have. But as soon as you bounce, you don't need to start driving. Just a single bounce resets that clock, and you can start then diving downwards. And just, if you ever played Super Mario 64, when you had the little slide, you go, you're racing the penguin or whatever, and you jump off, and you try to land to beat that penguin, and he's like, oh no, you cheated? Well, that's actually, you do want to cheat in this game. And it's hilarious that that sliding, spiraling idea is fully fleshed out. Because you can play a standard race mode. You can play a standard time trial mode. You can even do online multiplayer. But the career mode is where Super Impossible Road shines. As there's this whole little forking map of different modes to keep you fresh and always intrigued in these different styles as the courses change. And just, you'll want to keep going. As soon as you beat a mode in career mode, like, I'm going to go on to the next one. There was one where you had to beat the time in 20 seconds. I somehow did it in 19.99 seconds. I had to <laughs> grab a screenshot of that one. I don't know how I pulled that one off. Yeah, and, and in, in that, it keeps ramping up the difficulty as you're going through that career mode. But there is no better feeling in this game. When you go off that ledge and you see it getting darker and darker and darker, and then all of a sudden everything lights back up because you hit something in time just before it went all dark. And then if you were able to turn that into a win right after that, it is so awesome. Yep. So that's Super Impossible Road. Definitely check it out if you like any kind of action experience at all. 
<laughs> whether it's yep. driving, racing, Twitch based challenges, all of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so to round out the week, we have the Enchanted World from Noodle Cake Studios. They're just publishing this one. And so with that name, I instantly wanted to download it and was intrigued by it just because they have such a good pedigree. I mean, we obviously love Golf Blitz. We stopped talking about it on the podcast, but we had a, a streak going of how many times we've talked about it in a row. It was just updated today. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Enchanted World is a puzzle game, pure puzzle game. There's an adventure idea that instead of going from level to level, it's all fluid through one world. But essentially, it's a block slide and puzzle game. You have to slide the blocks to create a path for your enchantress to walk the path and start mo- keep moving through this world as all kinds of crazy stuff happens in the world. But the core idea, you slide the rows or columns of blocks to create a path. You know, there's curved pieces and there's straight line pieces, and you need to line them up so that there's a path from point A to point B. And as you go... There's more complex things to slide through. There's more forking ideas of getting this path together and more potential pieces to work with. But the core game is pretty straightforward. And I just, I I don't know if I expected more. I don't know if it was supposed to be more and they simplified it for Apple Arcade or whatever the case. But this game is just super easy. So it makes it super boring and it becomes monotonous to go through it. Yeah, I'm with you on this one, too. I saw a noodle cake attached, and I like got all excited. Um, and then I started playing it, and I'm like, oh, okay, these are like intro. These are teaching me the <laughs> mechanics, and I'm gonna, we're going to do more. And then it only got a little more complex in that you sometimes had to move the character partway through. You couldn't fully set up the pathway uh, and then just tap and get them through. Now you had to sometimes put them partway through, and then do the rest of the pathway, move things around them, and then you could get them through. But it never really picked up. It just seemed way too easy, and like you, it just repetitive and boring. It reminded me a lot of that Rotera Flip the Fairy Tale game that I found just really boring because it was just a lot of the same thing over and over again. I don't know. This one just really didn't click with me. I I, 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 maybe a younger kids or someone into fairy tales, but for me, it just was not what I was expecting and just not enough challenge or, or change or interest, uh, for me to continue even playing this. Not only that, but there's no real personality or charm or soul or any distinguishing factor of this game. It's just devoid of any of that. And it just leaves you going through the motions. The world the like polygon styles works for some games but for a puzzle game where you're building a story and caring about this enchantress it doesn't really work it just makes you removed from this faceless person you know in this kind of weird staff and it just you need that to want you to get through these puzzles when the puzzles themselves don't create their own unique engagement yeah yeah i think it would have been more enchanting like the title says if they had done like more of a personalities on the character instead of like you said that polygon style it just kind of removed the face and the 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 characteristics from these little creatures and like little bunnies running around in the the main character that it really didn't it gave them no personality it took away any personality they might have had and just 
didn't really make them all that interesting. Even then, like there were long stretches where you're just tapping through the world and they're just walking along paths <laughs> through the world. There's nothing to do. Like, okay, I see that this world is large and we're walking through it, but it, there's nothing there. Yeah, you could tap on some bushes and flowers grow, but other than that, it really, there was nothing there. Yep. I mean, really, there's nothing else to say. That's the Enchanted World. <laughs> Not every Apple Arcade game is going to be perfect, and this is just allows you to spend more time on some of these other games. Yep. And we'll be sure to talk about more Apple Arcade games next week. Hopefully, actually, some don't come out, so we might get through this backlog, but I'm sure there'll be four I'm or five sure new ones. I'm sure there's going to be more, yeah. <laughs> and so that's our Apple Arcade Spotlight, and I think that's everything for episode 120. Yeah, that's all I got. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at AppAdvice and at AppAddictNet for updates throughout the week. And to everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed and we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you later.